2: and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
1: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. You good people.
0: <laughs> all right, listeners. Uh, tuning in in again in a crazy, crazy moment. Uh, We're recording now on uh, June 2nd uh, in the uh, early afternoon. And, uh, you know, we have so much to talk about. And and our plan today is not to make it all about the Floyd protests in the current moment. But uh, we have to cover it and uh, to help us do that, but really look at the bigger structural and also foreign policy connections to the empire come home, we have another phenomenal guest. I mean, the lineup has been uh, unbelievable. And, and I was just so kind of fanboy excited when uh, when Colonel retired Larry Wilkerson agreed to come on the show. So uh, it's a real treat. And uh, I first met Larry in person at the All Volunteer Force Forum. Uh, we had a, a sort of a national convention down in, uh, down in Texas last year. Uh, General uh, Dennis Leitch is is another one of the co-leaders there, and uh, and, and frankly, just you know, sharing his stage, literally, actually, uh, if you remember, Larry, uh, with you was was pretty exciting because uh, I first, uh, I admit, sort of embarrassingly, came upon you uh, through the Why We Fight documentary in two thousand five that you were a part of. Uh, I've been following his columns, work and, and interviews, which have really exploded. I think especially again, you know, uh, uh, they were obviously massive right after uh, Larry left the administration, the Bush administration. But, uh, you know, they've they've stayed steady and now they've kind of jumped again because his voice matters. So uh, I will say that uh, Larry's uh, performances uh, or appearances and writing kind of shook me at a key moment. Uh, when I was in Iraq, 2006 and seven, when I was still kind of a wavering believer. Uh, and I think that's because of the platform and the credibility uh, that he has. So just very briefly on bio, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson's last positions in government were as Secretary of State Colin Powell's chief of staff from 2002 to 2005. Uh, he had also been associate director of the State Department's policy planning staff. Uh, which was then under the directorship of Ambassador uh, Richard House. And uh, some of you may know him. Obviously, he had worked during the Reagan years as well. Um, and he was a, a member of that staff responsible specifically for East Asia and the Pacific and political, military, and legislative affairs. And that was 2001 to two, and the, the real opening of the Bush administration. And I, and I think probably some of the formative years of uh, of the moment that we're in now. Uh, the genesis for it. So before serving at the State Department some of you may know that uh, he served 31 years in the U.S. Army. During that time he was a member of the faculty at the U.S. Naval War College uh, and that was in the late 80s. He was special assistant to General Powell uh, back when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, throughout the entire uh, George Bush I, H.W. Bush administration uh, for some really key moments. Obviously Uh, we're talking Panama and the Gulf War and some of the uh, you know, peace dividend or not, Cold War stuff, post-Cold War stuff. And uh, he was also director and deputy director of the U.S. Marine Corps War College at Quantico, Virginia. And that was from 93 to 97. So really the first uh, term of the Clinton years. Uh, Larry retired from active service in 1997 as a full colonel and began work as an advisor to General Powell. Uh, he has also taught national security affairs in the honors program at George Washington University in DC. Uh, and he's currently working on a book uh, about the first George W. Bush administration. Uh, Larry, we're so excited to have you on and really thanks for taking the time.
3: Good to be with you, Danny. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, you know, jumping in. So, uh. Okay, as the as the common military jargon goes, and I know you know it, uh, let me begin with some uh, housekeeping, right, so to speak. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, we don't intend to make this episode all about George Floyd, all about the protest or Trump's response. You know, in fact, we're going to start with some broader structural stuff surrounding foreign policy and your experiences, though we will uh, undoubtedly eventually shift to get some of your general thoughts on the present moment, which we think is just essential given your experience and sort of typical clear-headed eloquence on these complex matters. So jumping in, you know, forgive the cliche, but starting with a bit of background. Uh, Now, we vaguely know each other through, you know, various facets of the Quote unquote movement, such as it is. And, and, you know, we read and comment on each other's work. Uh, But I wouldn't pretend to speak for your full background and experience. You know, however, if I may, you know, given the broad contours of your career and some of the folks you've worked with and for, it seems safe to assume that you didn't exactly spring from a hippie background or plan to, you know, enter the world of descent from the outset. So perhaps you could give the listeners a sense of your personal and professional background, and just you know some of the key waypoints in your intellectual evolution on the core issues that you most often write and speak about.
3: Well, I didn't have my epiphany as fast as you did. I, I know you insinuated uh, that it was a little bit longer, perhaps, uh, but mine was an awfully long time. My father was a B-17 heavy bomber pilot in World War II. My father-in-law was with Patton's Third Army. Uh, My family had uh, all the way back, had all served. uh, And when I was at Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania in 1965, 66, I said to myself, hey, what am I doing here? I'm a rising senior, I guess is the terminology the kids use today. I'm going to be a senior. I've completed my junior year, and one of my best friends is killed in Vietnam, a fraternity brother of mine. Uh, that i become fairly close to. He was a year ahead of me, graduated ROTC, got commissioned and lasted about, as most lieutenants did if they they bit the dust, about two or three months uh, gone. And I said, I need to get out of here. I need to go. So I volunteered, uh, volunteered for Airborne Ranger Infantry with the Army, and uh, no one else would take me because I didn't have a college degree Uh, (laughs) and didn't get any of that, wound up. Uh, becoming a sergeant at E-5 on a very snow-covered uh, M60 machine gun range in uh, at Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey. And uh, my platoon sergeant came up to me and kicked me one time out there in the snow, and he said, would you like to go to OCS? I said, will it get me out of the snow, Sarge? So long story short, uh, became an officer, and uh, you know the rest of the story. Vietnam was my seminal experience with regard to killing people for no Goddamn reason. Um, and, but I didn't realize it probably until I had been out for a while, out of Vietnam for a while, and began to read and study and to understand the conflict I'd been involved in a little bit better. And probably, you know, again, slow learner, I didn't understand it really well until I began to study it later as a lieutenant colonel and a colonel, first as a student at the Naval War College and later on on my own. And I began to realize that a lot of the things I was told, a lot of the things indeed that I was still being told in the military and that others were being told who were still fighting in distant theaters, uh, were, were were simply preposterous. It had nothing to do with freedom and liberty and justice and the American way and all the things we were told. And it had everything to do with such seedy things as oil and commercial interest and economic... Uh, uh, welfare, if you will. It had to do with all the manner of, of, of things that did really had no re- rhetorical tinge to them at all. They were all basic, predatory, capitalist purposes. And that got me to thinking about what presidents do when they decide to send men and women to die for state purposes. And something we forget all the time, to kill other people for state purposes. The United States, by my own calculation, and certainly by conservative estimates from the Department of Defense since 2001, has probably killed about half a million people, if not more, in the world and put another five to seven million, maybe even 10 million into um, uh, diaspora, into uh, boats crossing the Mediterranean or, or crossing the Red Sea from Yemen into Sudan or or whatever. So it's not a pretty picture, but it took me a while. I didn't come to that realization quite as swiftly as you did. You're better educated.
0: Well, I I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I fear that, uh, that a lot of us have the uh, sense later that we waited too long. You know, a lot of times in interviews, I refer to my lapsed Catholic penance when I talk about the current work <laughs> because, you know, it it really does – feel always like like you should have known earlier and, and I understand that feeling um so uh, I have a, a, a follow-up that I mentioned but I, I just wanted to jump in with something brief that I didn't plan and and that's Vietnam because um I haven't heard you talk a whole lot about Vietnam in the past um although I know you do sometimes and there's all this talk about because you know you you were in the mix in the Reagan years and in the Bush years right and then of course later but there's all this talk about the Vietnam syndrome. And, and I'm reading, you know, Leo, Leo Grant's, uh, William Leo Grand's like, massive tome on Central America right now, for my sense, and uh, talking about the proxy wars. And, you know, the thing that comes up in every chapter is this Vietnam syndrome and how the military responded to it at all these different levels. And so uh, to what extent did your Vietnam experience inform your, you know, even before you had your, you know, total epiphany, To what extent did the Vietnam experience inform your time in government, both in the late part of your army career and then sort of early civilian uh, government career?
3: Well, it certainly informed what I would call my tactical experience, which is to say watching Americans shoot other people other uh, uh, under other than what I call law of war parameters. Uh, that is to say, slaughtering the gooks, uh, whatever term you might want to use to make the enemy subhuman, to make the enemy vile and evil and so forth, uh, that appreciation came on me quite quickly, even as a first lieutenant and then a captain in Vietnam, because I had people around me who, uh, like the famous Lieutenant Calley at My Lai, but not on that scale, were doing things that were, in essence, war crimes. And as a as a commissioned officer, it was my responsibility when I saw them or when I had opportunity to prevent them to do so. And so that, that epiphany, if you will, about Americans are not necessarily the people they claim to be um, came on me quite early. The larger uh, epiphany came on me over time and was – th- this is curious for me. I'm, I'm dealing with it even now as I think about it. I'm 75 years old, but I, I still think about this. Uh, Part of the reason I did not come to a realization of such things as I'm describing earlier was because I had really terrific leadership in three or four different seminal positions in my career. One Navy Admiral, another Army Two-Star, and then, of course, Colin Powell, a few others in there, but those three stand out. And in a sense, their ethics, which were solid and quite high, their personal integrity, their character shielded me from a lot of what I would have known otherwise had I just been the standard grunt down there still beavering away where the rubber meets the road. Instead, I was up in the ether and I got to hear all, I spent 12 years in joint service duty, working with all the services and working with some of the highest ranking officers first at Unified Commands, and then, of course, in Washington. And I, I, I was shielded from some of the stuff that goes on at the bottom. That's not a rationalization or an excuse. It's just a statement of how much I was captured by the high character and personality of the people I was around. One of the things I'm having a problem with in the manuscript I have now, which is approaching a 1,000 pages, is that I am taking apart the most seminal character and individual in that experience, Colin Powell. And it's a, it's a very wrenching thing for me to do, uh, to admit that his naivete, his hubris, his arrogance, and his sense that he could do anything at any time and more or less accomplish the mission, more or less come out on top, um, hurt him badly and marred his character badly. Uh, it's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy, if you will. Um, and and it hurts me as much as I suspect if I ever get this thing out. Um, it's going to hurt our relationship, if not sever it completely. But it's an interesting thing for me to do, to study this man. Heraclitus said man's fate is his character, or his character is his fate. And I think that's true. And if if, if it is true, then the fate of great men, to a certain extent at least, is the fate of nations. And I do consider Powell to have been in the panoply of great men that this country has produced. So you're looking at a man whose character and the flaws in that character actually reflect what's happening to a certain extent to the country right now. And it makes it even more poignant that he's a black man, and he's a black man who took the white man's coin, if you will. Um, I think it was Wellington who called it Nimukwala, which was an Indian term for taking the king's penny, taking the king's coin. And that's what Powell did. And it makes it even more excruciating to look at how he basically abandoned the principles that we're seeing right now, right in front of us, on the television screens almost daily now, that he once was uh, considered sacrosanct. They were, they, they were the principles of black people everywhere. You always stuck to those principles. Well, that's not the case anymore. I sit here wondering, where is Colin Powell? Why haven't we heard his voice on television? Why haven't we heard him come out and speak? Not just on behalf of blacks who are being treated so, treated so horribly and have been treated so horribly for two centuries plus, Uh, But on behalf of his nation, where is he? And I have to conclude that uh, more or less what I've crafted in this manuscript as a picture of his character is more accurate, perhaps, than even I thought. And that's very, very disappointing. And uh, it's very disquieting for me. But that helped me, if help is the right word, (laughs) from seeing clearly some of the things that you obviously have seen much earlier than I did because I had such good leadership. I had such quality people around me and above me. And that shielded me to a certain extent because you sit there and you rationalize and you say, well, if this man, if this woman believes the way they believe and if they're truthful with me, being truthful with me, then how can I doubt this? I must be seeing it wrong. I must not be analyzing everything correctly. I must not be high enough in my perch to see what they see. And now I realize, that you could go as high as you ever wanted to go. You could be president, you could be commander in chief, and you'd still be corrupt as hell. You'd still be sick. You'd still be the disciple of the empire and an empire that in its imperial actions today is reprehensible in a word.
0: You know, Larry, what you say, what you just said is, is so resonant uh, with me. And I imagine for so many of us who have become skeptical, um, I, I didn't reach, anywhere near the heist that you did, but I, I know the feeling, you know, a uh, shout out to Brigadier General Van Wagnon, you know, right now, uh, who's still serving over in England uh, with NATO. And, you know, there were years where I was able to also sort of, you know, justify staying when I was, totally against every war we were in because i would have run through walls for that man and i I still would and yet i realized sort of as i think you did the limits of you know working within the system and it's interesting what you say about powell because i'm going to press just a little bit more if if you may for uh some some more detail of your conclusions uh, to the extent you're comfortable but you know you said where is colin powell right now and and as proof of the power of his voice You know, I know it was mainstream and I know that Obama let a lot of us down, but I remember how influential his voice could be when he spoke up about, you know, the grave of the Muslim American soldier. You know, I think it was during the 08 election, you know, and how we have to be careful about, you know, or I can't remember what it was, we have to be careful about, you know, denigrating uh, Muslim Americans. And it was powerful and people listened on both sides of the mainstream aisle. So if you'll uh, allow me, you know, I want to follow up with, you know, what's first an observation, and I think you've laid it out pretty clearly. Uh, but, of course, please correct me if I'm misreading you. You know, having followed your appearances in writing for, you know, coming upon 15 years now, which is so crazy, uh, you know, I've always found you poignant and, and consistent persuasive. so it's not that you've, you know, jumped off the rails. Uh, but ever so slightly, I, I, just as a listener and a reader, I've detected a shift uh, not too similar to my own, or an evolution towards more systemic critiques, like you just mentioned with empire, right? That, that word uh, and, and what our detractors would probably call more radical critiques, right? Quote unquote. And uh, in a gradual way, as you mentioned, uh, I sensed even, you know, before you mentioned it for a couple of years now, an increasingly critical assessment of your old boss. And so, you know, and I'm of two minds about pal myself. So, you know, if you would, if you could, you know, tell me if I'm in the ballpark, which it sounds like I am and just kind of, you know, maybe, explain some of the evolution on your view of Powell's role uh, over the last 10 or or even more years since you've kind of left work with him.
3: Believe it or not, one of the most, uh, how shall I say it? One of the most effective means of waking me up to a certain flaw in his character was his wife. Um, And I'll I'll go back and relate uh, an anecdote that might illustrate it as powerfully as anything I could say. Um, one of the things that I was told when I first started working for him in 1989 was to be aware of his na- naivete. And I asked the young lady who told me that she'd been around him and worked for him for some time. I said, Mary Bell, what do you mean by naivete? And she said, well, he can be awfully trusting. He can stick with things be loyal to things far longer than he should. So just beware of that. Well, one of the things that happened when we were moving through 2004 and early 2005 at the Department of State, and as you will recall, I'm sure you were probably in it, uh, moving through a, a, a time period when the Secretary of Defense was saying, don't use the word insurgency, there's no insurgency, it's just a little disordered democracy, And all of us who had had any experience whatsoever, particularly those of us who had had experience in Vietnam, knew damn well we were looking at an insurgency. Um, During those very, very tight, tense times, he and I began to drift apart considerably. So much so that by the time he's giving me an award at the end of uh, our tour there, early 2005, we're hardly speaking. And it was all I could do to stand there and let the camera take a picture of him giving me an award. Um, We had come to that because of such things as this little anecdote I'm going to relate to. you. I had bet him a year out from the 2004 election, November 2004. I had bet him that if George W. Bush was reelected, that Condi Rice would be the secretary of state. And he had come back at me, reminding me vividly of what Mary Bell had said to me about his naivete. And he had said, oh, absolutely not the case. I don't know where you're getting your information, but that's absolutely not the case. She's sick and tired of this administration, too. By the way, this is an administration that the Deputy Secretary of State, Richard Armitage, referred to repeatedly in my presence, presence as the Nazis, the Gestapo. He called David Addington, Cheney's lawyer over at the vice president's office, a uh, member of the Schutzstaffel, the SS, the premier Nazi. This is how the deputy secretary of state was referring to the vice president's office. But he just said, oh, no, Condi's sick of this. She's as sick of it as we are. She's leaving. She's going back at academia. She's going back to Stanford. No way. I said, want to bet, boss, 50 bucks? Put your money where your mouth is. Oh, he said, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. I said, bet. He bet we shook about a month before the election. This was maybe seven or eight months before, about a month before the election. I reminded him of it. And he again, poo-pooed it completely, said absolutely impossible. Um, And all of a sudden I said, you know, quickly uh, and made him angry. uh, How about doubling the bet? He just dismissed me and told me to get out of the office. Um, Of course, Condi becomes secretary of state. Well, the woman who told me through my wife that she knew that all along and had been trying to convince him of that was his wife, Alma. Now, Alma went through a different experience as a black person. She went through the experience of her father, for example, being the principal of not one but two schools in Birmingham, Alabama. And she remarked to me with great pride that you could eat off the floor of either of his high schools. That if you brought any kind of weapon, a shiv, a a sharp instrument, whatever, let alone a gun, into one of his high schools, you would quickly be snatched up by him, your weapon confiscated, and you'd be read the riot act and never do anything bad again for at least a decade. That you could come in through any door in either of his high schools and feel safe. That there was no security issue really associated with either one of his high schools. She talked about the black church and what a great place it was for blacks to go for relief and for comfort and so forth. She talked about her time at Fisk university, the historical historically black college, uh, probably the premier black college HBCU. B U H B C U can't even get the acronyms right anymore uh, in America. And she talked about Mahari medical school right across the street from Fisk. And she talked about how her first date with a, a uh, prospective doctor from the medical school went. She had on a formal dress with white gloves almost up to her elbows, and the person who was looking after her, <laughs> she's a freshman at, at uh, Fisk, uh, tells her you've got to be back by 10 o'clock and everything, and she said there was no way I would have violated that curfew and so forth. And Long story short, what she's telling me is that blacks in America had a better life before they were turned loose, as it were. That is to say, uh, Powell and all the people who'd made it, who had gotten to Harvard or gotten to Yale or gotten to, in his case, City College of New York into the military and made rank and so forth, that they didn't really get it, Um, that it wasn't all that bad back there when blacks had something to turn to and they had something to gain comfort from and so forth and so on. And what she was telling me was she had a different understanding about this experience. And I I increasingly saw the difference in her understanding and in his understanding. And the only way I can excuse some of the behavior I'm seeing today and and put it down in my book without just cringing at putting it there is that he wasn't the same sort of black person that these other people were who understood the black experience far better than than he did because they had lived that experience, at least partly, if not entirely. And his wife personified that for me. Um, No question in my mind that she has a different appreciation of the black experience in America than he does. So maybe that's part of the explanation for why he comes out uh, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff even in the sense that he's in uniform still in 1992 when we had the Rodney King incident out in Los Angeles, and the bad times there, but ultimately winds up doing what his president asked him to do as chairman, because that's his character, because he's loyal and he was a, a, a duty-bound military individual, and fortunately it didn't get out of hand too badly, um, and the time now where I'm saying, where is he? Why isn't he making some comments? these are his people. These are black Americans who've been treated like shit for centuries. And he's not saying anything. Um, It just doesn't make any sense to me. And every day that goes by without him saying something, I don't care if he's 82 or 83 years old. Um, You know, I know that's old. uh, But I saw him on the Memorial Day concert, and he didn't say anything. And I I told my wife, I turned away from from his uh, visage on the TV screen. And I said, this is, this is disgusting. This is terrible. He's talking about all this hokey-ass stuff that always goes along with Memorial Day. The best thing he could say for Memorial Day is if you want to honor the troops, everybody out there listening to me, stop letting your president kill them. That's the best thing he could say. But I knew damn well he wasn't going to say that because that's not who he is now. That's not where he is now. And I'm not sure, and this makes me so disappointed. I, 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 I can't really talk about it that's not i'm quite sure where he ever was it was just an act and that's very disquieting well i don't i don't want i don't want you know isolate it to this issue but i'm a southern boy from south carolina you know uh, i should I, I stood on my dad's shoulders and watched trump Thurman campaign for his first job in the government um and, and When I joined Powell, he taught me so much about the black experience in America. And he taught me so much about particularly blacks in defense of America. That is to say the blacks who fought in every war America had ever fought in, the only one they didn't really go to in a big number was the Mexican War, which even Ulysses Grant said was a despicable war. Uh, It wasn't something that we should have been doing. Um, In any event, Uh, I learned a lot at his knee about the black experience. Now I ask myself, did I learn that because he wanted to teach a white man from South Carolina about that experience? Did he want to make sure that I interviewed 750 total black veterans for the work I was doing for him, for the speeches I was writing and so forth? Did he want that to happen or was all this just a part of a shroud? Was all this just part of... uh, uh, teaching the white boy about the black experience in America because that would make him write better speeches, but what he did was he taught me about the black experience to the point where I now am questioning why he isn 't standing up for his own people
0: yeah it's uh it's it 's fascinating and, and and just a little obscene, and you know you mentioned not you know drilling down to make it just about Powell uh, although I do think he's instructive uh, especially in this moment but you know I'm going to uh, go against all my verbose instincts and turn things over to Henry for a second because I know he wants to talk about sort of the senior military officers in a in a general sense
3: Please
2: Hi Larry I'm uh, I'm Henry I'm a uh, army veteran I did two tours in Iraq uh, mil- military police um Yeah, building on what Danny asked and and what you were mentioning about the atmosphere post 9-11 there at the Pentagon and the State Department, I was wondering if you could broaden up a little bit for us and talk about how did the general officers that you dealt with during that time see the president's movements towards war? Was there any visible dissension or at least concern behind the scenes um, was anybody uh, accused of disloyalty if they weren't immediately on board with going to Iraq? And uh, how did they see the choice by General Shinseki to, um, when he gave his testimony about mobilizing 200,000 troops for the invasion?
3: Most rationalized the experience, and they rationalized it in different ways. But the most prominent way was they said— Norm Schwarzkopf signed a ceasefire agreement with Saddam's generals in the desert at the end of the first Gulf War. We have owned the upper one-third and lower one-third of Iraq for the past year since that ceasefire. Indeed, we have engaged Saddam's air defense and other assets from time to time. We have sent ordnance down at them. They have sent ordnance up at us. The war never ended. It just went into a a state of ceasefire limbo, but it never ended. So all we're doing in 2003 is resuming that war and putting a coda to it. That was the rationale that I heard the most. There were specific instances where people like Tommy Franks on the phone to my boss, who was very reluctant to do this because though he had been chairman of the Joint Chiefs, He'd been cautioned fairly stridently by the vice president that he was no longer chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He was the secretary of state. Therefore, he should keep his nose out of military business. But it's it's hard to do when you know other people are screwing up so bad that you'd like to slap them silly. So he's on the phone with uh, General Franks and General Franks is telling him things like, uh, you know, don't tell me I need 200 or 300,000 troops going. God damn it. I mean, you know, I'm lucky I didn't have to use the 54,000 Rumsfeld wanted me to do it with initially. So I'm really happy that I got 160, 164, 165,000 troops. And you've got people like uh, Jay Garner, who are really, uh, as was I, in January of uh, uh, 2004. Yeah, was it? No, it was January 2003. Yeah, January 2003, right before the war started in March. We're over at the National Defense University, and we're sort of uh, with all the people who are supposed to have been doing the intricate planning for what, you know, we call phase four, that is post-hostilities in Iraq. And Jay realizes that all he's doing there, and I realize, and everyone else too, I think, is meeting each other, that there's been no planning at all, that indeed there is no plan. Jay is just sort of a pickup team going over to Iraq to sort things out in the aftermath and come home by August. Um, So let's put it this way. The generals were not reluctant to take the commander-in-chief's orders and go over and end the war that Norm had started and they knew it was gonna be fast and furious and quick and they'd be gone. Uh, Some totem pole would be installed like Ahmad Chalabi and he would be sympathetic at least for a week or two to the United States and even more importantly to Israel. And therefore, we would have done our job and everything would be over. And uh, there were some people in the Pentagon and there were some generals amongst them who thought Syria was next and maybe they'd even move on to Iran. But the basic feeling, I think, amongst the general officer corps and those with whom I ran into who I talk more frequently at the colonel and lieutenant colonel level was that they were just continuing something we started uh, in 1991 or Saddam started and uh, we're finally putting an end to it. That was sort of the rationale that people used at that time.
2: It's it's incredible to, to hear about. I um, I spent uh, I spent five months um, with my MP company stationed at the Pentagon um, in the beginning of two thousand three, and so I not not really involved with any you know specific offices or anything. We were just checking people's IDs but you immediately felt the the attitude shift among these people who got to go to office jobs and weren't on the on the list for deployment soon which of course I've, lots of mps were along with, with with myself but uh it's incredible to hear about larry
3: you know i you know i got a letter from rumsfeld as chief of staff of the state department and the letter said i was greetings you know almost and it said I was going to be called back to active duty and I went into the secretary and I said hey boss uh, look Don sent me this letter here I'm going back to be a colonel in the Pentagon I knew I wouldn't go into Iraq I would have gone to Iraq in a heartbeat but I knew I wasn't going there because I was too old they were going to send some younger colonel there and I would take his place in the Pentagon that was the plan I um, mean, of course, he said, "No, no, no, no. You're not going anywhere. You're in a you're in a critical position." Blah, 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 blah. And we had an argument over that because I said I'd prefer to go to Iraq or go to the Pentagon or do whatever I had to do. And uh, <laughs> Roosevelt had sent me the letter and sort of got me out of it. And by that time, I was already at the point where uh, I was feeling a little bit a little bit out of place, a little bit not not well located because things were. I was looking at all kinds of things. I was looking at the neoconservatives at his direction. I had put together a, a, a dossier on Richard Pearl, whom you may know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the dark knight who led the neoconservatives intellectually, along with uh, Bill Kristol and several others. I was doing things like uh, uh, trying to cover Powell's flanks in his rear with the press and not succeeding very well, and so it was a very disappointing job. Because when you've got the entire administration against you on most key issues, and you're alone, and on top of that, you're the diplomatic instrument of national power, which since Nixon, and arguably even before, post-World War II, has been in retreat, and since Nixon has been in blind retreat, we don't do diplomacy anymore, except with the military, then you're sucking. You're sitting in the place where everybody thinks, as Nixon did, that, uh, you know, as he put it in his colorful language, pinko fag communists live. Um, you can listen to the tape. That's what Lincoln, or that's what uh, Nixon thought of his State Department. And the State Department has been taking it in the rear end ever since uh, and, and majorly took it uh, with George W. Bush. The only thing that saved it was the personality and character and stature of Colin Powell. And you're seeing what's happening to it now under Trump. I mean, it's being eviscerated it, it, along with a diplomatic instrument. It, it might, not even, might not even should exist anymore because the military is the tool we use for everything. We are a national security state. We are a warfare state. Our raison d'etre is war. I have students now who have never lived in a country not at war. And occasionally they will remind me of that as we study national security decision making. So it, it was uh, it, it was an extraordinary time for me. It was a learning time. It was a painful time. It was a time to break from an individual whom I had come to love and to admire and to enjoy working for. And by the time we get to January two thousand and five, as I said, uh, uh, we're uh, we're in opposite ends of the pole, so to speak.
1: Hi, Larry. I'm Kagan. I uh, was in the Navy. I worked in the at NSA, Georgia. Um, working on, uh, you know, Fifth Fleet AOR stuff. So, like, Yemen, Syria, the Libyan mission, um, all of the stuff from, like, in Obama's first term from 2009 to 2013. Um,
3: then I have a question I, for you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why the hell did we ever do Libya? <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Oh. It was, I've, I mean, this is my take on it. But I honestly feel like Obama wanted to show and the people that supported his mission of like doing war, but in this slow, like secretive way. I mean, um, I think that's Libya was like his opportunity and the the whole NSC, like their opportunity to show that we can do war without having boots on the ground. And, you know, and then we did the mission and it was over and then we're like, okay, what now? And and there was no direction. There was no, like, oh, hey, like, we're going to do X, Y, and Z now. And I felt like that was, oh, it was so frustrating. And even me from my, like, I did I, I did e-link mostly, so I was doing radar stuff. And, like, even from my perspective, I'm just, like, what what are we doing? Like, not, <laughs> but um, I also, like Danny mentioned, why we fight was the first thing I saw you in. And that was actually my, 2005 was my uh, freshman year of college. And that really like got me started to, like I I was against the war when it first happened. Um, But then when I found out about all the lies and everything, that just made it even worse. And I just remember watching that documentary and like seeing you and being like, oh my gosh, here's a guy who's been like at the top and sees this stuff for what it is. And I just I really appreciate you having the courage to stand up and say what you needed to say. Um, and that was really influential in me. I didn't join the Navy until four years later, but like that was it. And so for me, um being in the community. So for me, um pointing out all the systemic policy failures that you've already pointed out. Um for me, I look at overclassification because I, every single day, I would look at something and I would say, why is this classified? And when I started to, like, when I would reach out to people, you know, obviously nobody would give me a straight answer. But um,
3: when it's I listened to... It's most, often guys, cla- it's most often classified to protect the politician's ass.
1: Yes, yes. And I, I, I know in that documentary that you were in, actually, was the guy who was the classifications are. Uh, for a number of years, and I, he also is another guy that I really respect, because he points out the specific things that are wrong, and he says, you know, he, he, had, he wrote a whole book about this, and he's talking about, you know, the fact that it is, it's to cover people's ass, it's because it's embarrassing to a certain group, so they don't want to say anything, um, also, the fact that people tend to overclassify, because sometimes they won't even read it, unless it's that classified at a certain level, and it also gives them something on their fit rep or, like, it makes uh, a lot of officers or people who are the Orcon to, it, it It can, like, help promote them with their career as well. So it's, like, there, there's all these incentives to overclassify things right now. And so I wanted to know what you felt like, why it was happening, and if there's anything that we can do, especially those of us who have been a part of the community and are not anymore, like what can we do in your mind to fix it?
3: I have many students who ask me similar questions, particularly those who like this last semester and the semester before it, go to the NGA or go to the DIA or go to Booz Allen or in one case, go to the CIA. And it's fascinating to try and answer their questions much the way you've couched some questions right here now um, and others, and then talk to them a year later or two years later, as I do with some of them who went, say, from GW back in 2006 or from William & Mary in 2007 or whatever. They've been there quite a while now. One young lady at the NSA, for example, who's been there since 2006, and she's risen rapidly as well she should. She was a brilliant, brilliant young lady. Spoke fluent Arabic, fluent Farsi. Uh, Chinese, Russian, just a brilliant girl. Um, and you, you you watch them go through the process that I just tried to roughly describe with regard to Powell, the process that puts them with good leaders in most cases. She had one bad leader that almost got uh, got her to quit and leave, but we managed to get her around and get her around that leader in a sense and get to another one that was much better for her. Um, and you watch them do the same thing I was just describing I did. You watch them become a part of the mechanism, a part of the bureaucracy, a part of the intelligence complex, et cetera, et cetera. And you wonder if they're going to make it to the point where they are questioning things like you and I are right now, including classification levels and so forth. But even more importantly, questioning things like, Uh, Benny and Drake and others revealed and and got raked over the coals for um, Trailblazer versus Thin Thread. And the multi-billion dollar contractor program that was a total boondoggle. And the program, roughly $3 million program developed in-house in the NSA and actually worked. But then you have to say, work to do what? And then you understand that one of the problems that Others that blew the whistle had with that program even, and Snowden, of course, blew the whistle big time on this, was that they were going to use that program to surveil Americans and to gather data on Americans and not just metadata. So it's, a, it's an extremely difficult community to send my youngsters off to to work. And yet when they ask me, should I do this, I always say yes and do what you can to change it. You, you've you been in this seminar, you know some of the things that are wrong, you've listened to people, I bring and tell people in to talk to them too, who whose character I know and whose um, uh, integrity, I'll say, is probably the best word I know. And they'll come in and they'll talk to them about the NGA, the CIA, Booz Allen, whatever it might be. Um, but it's extremely difficult for me to sit there and say, uh, you aren't going to have, too much problem because you're so bright you're so energetic you're so dynamic and so forth you are going to have problems and one of the way one of the things i'm waiting for is some of these kids to be whistleblowers i just know one or two of them are going to be because of the very thing you're asking the question about and other things too um, that devolve into the intelligence community um you you know we were talking about libya i got to tell you this in uh November the last the last um year of Obama's second administration in the fall, I, I want to say it was November the tenth, it might have been September, or October anyway. We're in the Roosevelt room in the White House and I'm there with General Paul Eaton and we're there ostensibly to be thanked for our work on the joint comprehensive plan of action, the nuclear agreement with Iran, um and dead now, of course. And Obama is supposed to spend about 15 minutes with us, and he winds up spending 45 minutes with us. And Kerry, his secretary of state, is sitting right there with him. And I'll never forget the first words out of his mouth. And I went out of there, and I I, I had to look at this a little more, more deeply. I had to do some research. And I realized after doing the research, he was talking about Libya. I mean, Libya had seared his soul. He said, and this is a direct quote, there's a bias in this town toward war. Those are his exact words that he led off with addressing General Eaton and I. And then he went into a disquisition on how essentially he didn't know what to do about it. I mean, we, we, we saw he dispatched uh, Samantha Power to the United Nations, got rid of her. I'm sure that was partly because she'd been a real influence on his decision to go do Libya, as it were. Um, I think he put Susan Rice a little bit more at arm's length. Uh, I'm I'm damn sure he put John Kerry a little more at arm's length. I think he was lecturing John Kerry that day in that room with us because Kerry at that time was, you might recall, was advocating for U.S. troops on the ground in Syria. So Obama was telling his secretary of state with no uncertainty whatsoever in his voice, ain't going to do that, dude. So quit advocating for it. I mean, he was using that moment to do all of that. But the pain that he was expressing with regard to what he couldn't control, which was the warfare state, was uh, very illustrative, very illuminating. I never thought I'd hear a president, a sitting president of the United States, actually admit that. And part of this whole warp and woof, of course, is what you asked your question about specifically. It's the overclassification of intelligence. It's the warping of intelligence underneath that classification where nobody can see it and know that you're warping it to fit your policy needs. It's all this and more that's distorting good decision-making and thus distorting the way we go about our business in the world. And I think, as I've said increasingly now, we're looking at an empire in decline, and not only in decline, but at any moment might go precipitously into that dark night.
2: The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But well, we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone anyone whom you might think could be affected by it. A young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military, conscientious citizens who care about the violence, the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think might be affected by it. Please, please. Take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing all the new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody, and we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, I, I am really freaked out about what's going to happen here in the next couple of months, especially if Trump continues to press the like trying to deploy troops and stuff. And like, I mean, yeah, it's we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in the next two months because stuff is so fluid. And there yeah, and there
3: I think there, yeah, and there, there are two huge crises. I don't, I don't want to make light of the coronavirus, and I don't want to make light of the crisis in the streets right now, they are significant crises and they're indicative of the fact that we have not fixed, we have not fixed real significant problems in this country. And we just keep putting them off and putting them off. But let me, let me just see if I can't frighten you a little more. If you've read read Michael Clare's book, All Hell Breaking Loose, the Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change, and you've looked at what President Obama did and what Trump has done since him with regard to backing out of arms control agreements, especially nuclear ones, and developing new nuclear weapons and so forth, you know we have two existential crises staring us in the face. The first and most immediate one is the potential for a nuclear conflict, and the second one is the climate crisis, the second one being the Earth saying, finally, in its inimitable style. You're gone, dudes. Like the dinosaurs, you're gone. We don't need you anymore. You're gone. We're not going to tolerate you anymore. You're gone. Uh, we're looking at by the time my students rise to their, you know, middle ages, 55, 56, 60, um, we're looking at a potential crisis of huge proportions that might even be existential for the human race on this planet. And I see Almost nothing, as Michael Clare points out, the Pentagon is the only entity in the federal bureaucracy really energized to meet this crisis. I see no one else doing anything. In fact, I see people in Trump's White House walking us backwards in this regard, not even recognizing it, denying it, like Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma bringing a snowball into the Senate and holding the snowball up and saying, oh, climate crisis? I don't see any climate crisis. And he's totally in the arms of the fossil fuel industry. He's totally enamored of that industry because they pay for his re-election and re-election and re-election. So we're in a crisis situation now that is so much more than the coronavirus and the protests in the street right now, though they are serious and they could lead to more. And they detract from our being able to meet these bigger crises, which are going to take international cooperation to meet, because it doesn't matter if China stops its pollution or we stop our pollution or Brazil stops its pollution or whatever. We've all got to cut back and we've all, look at the skies in the last few weeks and look at how clean and clear they look. This should be enough of a statement to anyone to say that, man, what we've been doing is polluting this planet. And we need to stop. We need to go to different sources of energy. We need to do different things with our infrastructure. We need to make it resilient. We need to make it uh, repetitive and repeating. We need to make it so it's not the kind of infrastructure that contributes to our problem but helps us solve our problem or at a minimum is neutral. Um, There are so many things we need to do, and I see no leadership to do it. And one of the ways the leadership, getting back to your question, one of the ways the leadership hides a lot of this from the American people is through secrecy. You would be utterly amazed to know how many laws the Congress has passed in the last 20 years that they passed in total secrecy and that they passed so that their execution and enforcement is secret.
1: Yeah, well, that's what bothered me so much when I'm doing the training and I'm learning about the FISA Act and I'm learning about just the entire apparatus that was basically being built at that time too. So stuff was changing all the time, but it's like, that was what bothered me so much when I was in, I'm like, wait, how can we have this legal system that is entirely separate from the regular legal system? And then we just cover it all up and say, everybody has to be like read in to be able to even know about this stuff.
3: And 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 you know about you know about that at least a little bit. There are so many you don't know anything about.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And it's it like it just that was one of my main reasons for like being against a lot of this beyond just the fact that nobody was ever asking the question of is this effective and are we doing anything with all these operations? You know, it was just the fact that like we're gonna just cover everything up. And then when I sit there and I try to talk to my friends you know, who are in the community, and, you know, this was during Manning, this was during Snowden, and I'm so grateful I had friends that I could sit there and talk to this stuff in, like, a real critical way. Um, I probably would have gone crazy if I didn't have that, so, hmm. um, but it's great, like, I'm, I was grateful that I was able to talk about those things and be like, what would we do if we were in their position, and we felt like the only thing we could do was just go the whistle.
3: What? I think I think that's increasingly the case. I, I'm just I, yeah. a, a book I'll recommend to you is Tom Mueller's uh, 2019 book, Crisis of Conscience: Yes. Uh, yeah. The age of whis- uh, whistleblowing in the age of fraud. And you read that book and I, I guarantee you, as you complete each chapter, you will throw it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so exasperating. It's everything from what Bechtel is doing in complicity with Department of Justice and Department of Energy and Department of Homeland Security at Hanford Nuclear Complex out on the Columbia Mm -hmm. River. That could be a Chernobyl at any moment. Any moment. Could be a hundred times worse than Chernobyl at any moment. And Bechtel and DOE, they have a revolving door at DOE and Justice and Homeland Security, just like we do at the Pentagon, for scientists who go out to the national labs, who go out to Hanford, who go other places in the nuclear complex. We have not gotten rid of our nuclear waste. We've just filled up the last place to put nuclear waste, and yet we're generating more and we're going to make more. It's insanity what we're doing. And that's only one chapter of his book.
1: Well, I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk about the PR of the DOD and just what your thoughts are about why yeah, you know, like we, we've talked in, on the pod before about just the fact that we're not, the Pentagon isn't reporting civilian deaths unless they are confirmed by another source. And they're only being, they're only confirming them if they are asked, which I think is really messed up. I, this is happening a lot in Africa right now, uh, particularly, but I just wanted to talk to you about like what the PR is like when it comes to military operations and why. Why it seems like nobody cares right
3: now. They care, but what they care for and about is protecting DOD.
1: Right, right. Well and how do we how do how does anybody like punch puncture that?
3: It's difficult. You you, you have to do something like the cost of war project at Brown. Uh, you, you really have to get somebody in there who, uh, in, in, the, in the case of the of War Project, they have several women in there who are just beavers at research. And you have to just do FOIA after FOIA, or a Freedom of Information, uh, Information uh, Act uh, request. You have to go to the investigative teams on the mainstream media and sometimes non-mainstream media. You, you just have to go all over the place to try and put together the pieces and construct a better picture of whatever it is that you're trying to uh, find the truth about. One of the places that I've seen some really brave people doing things is Syria, trying to find out about OPCW, for example, trying to find out if they really were manipulated by the United States to make it look like Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons. I'm quite confident that they were now. I'm quite confident that their whistleblowers are right when they come out and say, no, there was no definitive proof that he used any kind of chemical weapon. He may no. have used some low-grade chlorine or whatever. Um, these And are then
1: you things- look at what the weapons are and like you look at how they are. I, I probably shouldn't say a lot about this because I did this, but it's just like, there's all these red flags that when you look at the information, you can see, oh, wait a minute. Like this story that they're telling us about this is not lining up with the facts.
3: But you're, you're a professional, and you know that you smell a rat instantly. Most Americans are not only not professionals, they're fat, dumb, and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, pulling something, I, I think the GRU and the NKVD and Putin and his FSB, I think they must chortle every night because we're such an easy target. You don't need very sophisticated bots to get us to do something. I mean, we are some of the dumbest people on the face of the earth. I'm convinced of that. And that's that's just a statement of fact. It's not a statement of invective or hatred or, you know, it's a statement of fact. One third of us are so fat we can't get in the military, and another third of us are so stupid we can't pass the ASPAD.
0: Well, uh, Larry, I have to tell you that I was speaking to my handler, uh, Vladimir, earlier this morning and uh, he doesn't agree you know he, he he's actually involved in all of this and and he's actually behind all these protests as well um yeah you know i should i shouldn't even joke about that right because this is recorded and i'm sure it'll be used at my trial but it, it's really interesting what you what you had to say about <laughs> the way that they must laugh right you know the the gru etc um because you know a, as i just kind of briefly transition to some questions about what is happening now and what it really reflects, it's really become interesting how in every phase of whatever monolithic enemy war lie, frankly, that we're, we're sort of facing, uh, whether it was the Cold War, which, you know, had, had real aspects and then overblown aspects or the war on terror. And now this kind of war in the streets. It does seem that there's always some sort of broad brush pejorative that can be you know thrown at dissenters uh and and it's it's been fascinating to watch you know tulsi gabbard become a russian asset on a much lower level me consistently being called the same as well as so many others and i can't imagine some of the ad hominem that you faced but this is this does strike me as a very dangerous thing to brush all you know dissidents of any sort as un-american or somehow foreign agents No.
3: It is. It's extremely dangerous. It reminds me uh, of McCarthy and his anti-communism, House Un-American Activities Committee and all that good stuff that got even a guy as hard-headed as Harry Truman to make people take loyalty oaths before they could serve in the United States government. Um, But it's the politics of democracy to a certain extent. If you want to get elected and the majority of your people have no real civil feeling only want to make food and, and drink water and, you know, have a job and that sort of thing and don't have any civic responsibility or a sense of civic responsibility, then, you know, you, you're a politician, you want to get elected. You kind of, kind of got to let Joe uh, say what he says, and you've got to do something that makes it look like you're taking actions uh, to remedy the situation that Joe has pointed out, even though if you grab Joe's hand, and you pulled it out of his inner coat pocket where he just put the list of 200 communists who live and work at the state department every day, you'd find a blank piece of paper. Now, why do we fall for that crap? Why do we go for that kind of stuff? We do. And it's not like it's the first time it's ever happened with Donald Trump. It's happened throughout our history. Absolutely.
0: And, uh, you know, kind of a last point. On as uh, as I was on mute, you know, I got a message. Uh, one of the organizations I belong to is About Face Veterans Against the War. We used to be called uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War. You know, and and I don't speak for I don't speak for them in this instance. But you know, I mean, they just you know they've put out a you know an encouragement to stand down, you know, to active duty troops in the National Guard called on to commit violence against the, the peaceful protesters. And, uh, you know, a uh, one of the members, one of the leaders share, uh, you know, an email from another veteran that said... Uh, that made that we're terrorists because of it and they sent our link you know to the Department of Justice and of course nothing will probably come of it but it's it speaks to exactly what you're talking about that you know it, it will not save you right that you're an organization of hundreds of combat veterans that won't save you if you no. if you go against the narrative it's very frightening
3: it's uh, the same with the people in Washington DC last night who opened their doors and let the protesters who were being shot with rubber bullets and beaten by the police into their homes. I mean, they're aiding and abetting terrorists now.
0: A very dangerous word, terrorists, It's like the yeah. communist was. So, yeah. all right, so let, let me kind of transition into that. You know, like I said, we weren't going to make this all about what's happening now, but you know we would be remiss if we didn't get someone of your uh, caliber's take on what the going's on, and we've touched on it a little, but again, for everyone, we're recording this on the afternoon of 2 June 2020, so we're about a week into the ongoing protests, and uh, you know, like I mentioned, Larry, frankly, I'm going to give you mostly just the space to comment on what you find most relevant. But my one prompt is, you know, it involves the tweets of the commander in chief, because apparently that's, you know, sort of how we do leadership now. And, well, you know, the tweets, you know, calling for a counter MAGA rally, uh, which struck me as a degree of almost like vigilante uh, deputization. Uh Tweets about the unlimited power of the military. I thought that was a very dangerous word, unlimited. Uh, talking about how the governor or the mayor in Minneapolis uh, in Minnesota was, you know, not living up to MacArthur and Patton, of course, without any knowledge of the Bonus March. And then, of course, when the looting starts, starts the shooting starts, which was a, uh, you know, ripped from the from the mouth of you know a segregationist mayor. So, from my own soda straw, admittedly, uh, aperture, it, it seems to me that he's mischaracterizing many, if not most really most of the protesters, uh, at least in my experience, uh, which I try to limit it to. Uh, But I find his daily comments, you know, whatever one thinks of looting, fires, violence, and and so on, whatever you think of that, uh, you know, it it seems that his comments are inflammatory and and frightening. You know, I'd be lying if I said that I'm not selfishly a a little scared out there in those streets where, you know, incidentally, I'll likely be later today uh, again. And, uh, you know, the leadership by tweet may only increase some of that danger. So that's a big prompt, and I I put my colors out there. But uh, for starters, maybe you could – You know, uh, just give us your take on the president's role or any president's role uh, and what you think of the potential and actual presence of troops in the streets in this
3: moment. I've been getting emails all day long and most of yesterday, too, from people in Los Angeles, New York, um, Atlanta, uh, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere who have been asking me questions like, and these are sane and sober people. They're academics, they're scholars, they're military veterans, they're people I've met in various places like uh, dinners in the State Department where we would have a CEO of American Express come in or president of the University of Texas or maybe some other corporate leader or whatever. And they're asking me the same question, basically. What's going on, Larry? Tell me this is not what it looks like. Tell me that we're not about to see... The 101st Airborne or the 82nd Airborne or the Fourth Mech or, or the 10th Mountain in the streets of America. Tell me that one of them said today, what I just read is not really the 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 reality. I said, What did you just read? And he said, I'll send it to you. And he sent me a transcript of Trump's conversation with how he got it, I don't know, um, with the governors. And it was like you were just saying, only it was very, very specific. And it was, you got to crack down. If you can't crack down, I'll crack down for you. You want the active military? Just call me. I'll send the 82nd Airborne. They will descend on your city, et etc. et cetera. It was, if, it was as if he were trying to first cow the governors, second, intimidate them, and third, okay, if you want anything ever again from Washington, you better just respond and you better respond positively. Either you call out your National Guard in mass and you take care of your problems or I'll send in the military. I mean, that's the way the conversation went. So I echo everything you just said and say mine and all the people who've been emailing me from across the country and incidentally from overseas too, asking me things like one Canadian did this morning. What the hell is wrong with America? Um, I have the same concern you do. I have a strong concern about the election in November. I think we're setting the scene right now to abrogate that election, to either declare a national emergency and say you can't have the election because of the emergency based on a resurgence of the virus or even worse riots than we're having right now that are more or less egged on and exacerbated by actions in the White House. Um, I see a man who I think clearly understands finally that his base is probably not gonna be enough, that he's probably gonna lose in November. That's the first thing. Secondly, I see a man who wants to cling to power come hell or high water. And then thirdly, I see a man and I worse, worse, around him I see array of people who would help him do this who will cling to power through any means he can find to do it. And I also see, and this is sort of counter to that, but it goes right along with it in terms of creating concern. I also see people like Esper and Pompeo who believe that they are losing the opportunity to do the things they want to do. Esper to mount a genuine Cold War with China and Pompeo to end the regime, the theocratic regime in Tehran. Now, they both want that, and the both both of them want what the other one wants, but those are the priorities for those two men. And I see them seeing Trump losing in November and therefore taking frantic actions to try and either bring about their policy objectives with regard to Iran and China before he leaves, or doing something even more untured, uh, untoward and ensuring that those policy objectives can't be reversed by an incoming administration. Like, for example, returning to the Joint Conference Plan of Action with Iran. Pompeo's doing, and his emissary Brian Hook are doing everything they can right now to ensure that the new president, whomever it might be,'s hands are tied and that they can't do anything to lock them into the same regime change. Maximum pressure campaign that they're in right now. So, those two sets of forces, Trump wanting to cling to power, they're wanting to get things done that are not necessarily in our national interest before he loses power, uh, they could collide in and of themselves. But together, they are torturous and dangerous developments in our now very, very imperiled democracy, in my view. And this man has brought to fruition and brought to a an apogee, if you will, the, the things that I saw really start with a vengeance post nine eleven, But they had been going on for some time. I mean, arguably, they've been going on in a recognizable way since about 1972. And as far as the disparity of wealth in this country is concerned, it was given a major kick by Bill Clinton, Bob Rubin, Larry Summers and all those gangsters that Clinton, and I have to say, too, Obama continued in office, brought to the White House and brought to the administration of the American economy and the American uh, financial situation. We're in dire straits right now because of those people.
0: You know, I'm not, uh, I shouldn't have to say this, but whereas I don't feel comfortable passing judgment on every single thing that's done uh, because I think it's very complicated. You know, personally, I'm sort of anti-looting. That said, uh, you mentioned Larry Summers and the other gangsters, and it is fascinating, you know, what sort of looting is uh, acceptable uh, when it's of the public treasury and and pension funds. And, And I thought what you mentioned about the election is interesting because, you know, we held an election, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in the midst of a civil war that killed more Americans than essentially, all, you know, almost all our other wars combined. And and part of the reason that and, Lincoln wins. Go ahead, and, please.
3: and in the middle of a, of a Great Depression, that was horrible.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. We, yep. And so it would be interesting if this was the moment, right, that, that Trump decided, you know, this, this is too much, you know, when you really look, when you, when you take a breath and, and look at it empirically, you know, and, and at scale so far, I mean, this pales in comparison to, you know, even a single riot in Newark in 1967, right, in terms of deaths uh, so far, uh, which was a similar span of about four days. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's really disturbing. I, I will say that, uh, you know, one of the reasons Lincoln gets affected, a lot of scholars, you know. Uh, say is you know the vote of the soldiers in the field you know in the army of the Potomac and the other armies and uh, you know I can't speak for all the soldiers but I'm I'm seeing anecdotally a lot of uh, rumblings of dissent even in the active force because of course my students are all out there uh, and uh, you know a lot of uh, peers but um, you know Henry found a and reviewed something that you'd, you'd written on police militarization. And so, whereas so far uh, you and I, and my question spoke to, you know, active duty troops in the streets, to some extent, federalized national guard. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Henry for, I think, a you know, a, a key discussion on uh, the empire coming home in a very real way to local community policing.
3: Okay.
2: So we're, we're all, uh, watching and and observing the fallout from uh, the senseless murder of George Floyd, although his death is only the most recent in years of uh, systemic police violence towards Black Americans. Um, police violence kills al- around 1,100 people a year, with a hugely disproportionate number of them being African Americans. So, Larry, I'm I'm wondering what what are your thoughts in this current moment about the excruciatingly heavy-handed. Militarized police response to the protests of George Floyd's death. It seems that the the garrison state of America is definitely on full full display um, to include uh, a military police presence. I saw in in photos and other places this morning that there are a couple different places where you can see uniformed troops. I assume they're National Guard MPs, and on their their riot shield says military police, as if irony and over militarization were a literal line military police soldiers are are standing on it right now um and for advocates of peace and anti-militarism where do you think the focus should be when it comes to demilitarizing our police forces and creating that concrete separation between war fighters and crime fighters um as the the constitution project that you worked on characterized it
3: yeah, I am I come at this from two perspectives. My son-in-law is a 20-year veteran of the Montgomery County Police Force. So I have a real insight into that aspect of policing. My son-in-law is also a person who believes in and practices uh, what he believes, community policing. That is to say, he's the kind of person who goes up to a 16-year-old who's selling uh, Oxycontin out of the trunk of his car at a high school in Damascus. Uh, Maryland, And instead of arresting that 16-year-old, gives him a riot act reading, if you will, and then takes him home to his mom and dad and gives them a little bit of a riot act reading and says, this is what I caught your boy doing. He could be a felon right now. I am not going to arrest him. I'm going to give you a chance to put him on the straight and narrow. I'm going to give you a chance, young man, to resurrect your life. That's the kind of policeman my son-in-law is. He laments the fact that we have turned the police forces in America into what we have in many instances. And the Constitution Project demonstrated to me what that is. Um, We did things like have 35 of the leading police chiefs in America, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Dallas, and so forth, come in and talk to us at the Constitution Project. In addition to having sitting judges and having ACLU members and so forth, we had a really uh, eclectic team come in and brief us on what was happening to law enforcement as the military sold almost $5 billion worth of equipment to them. Um you know, oh wow, you sold that to them? Why in hell did you sell that to them? At the same time I had an experience with my own university where they sent us four hundred M sixteens and our president at the time, Taylor Reebley, essentially said, Send these back to the Pentagon. What the hell do we need with M sixteens at William and Mary? And what the hell does the William Mary police force need with them? And this was all going on. We were listening to it. We were listening to the police chiefs tell us they didn't want this. It was militarizing their law enforcement elements that in most cases they had this community policing concept and idea, too. And this weaponry and all that it represented was corruptive of this kind of philosophy. We were told about the number of SWAT teams in cities like Chicago and Los Angeles that had gone into the wrong place, that had killed people in that wrong place that had done it based strictly on a a snitch's information, that the snitch was probably getting even with the person or people who lived in that house, that sometimes there was absolutely no connection with even what the snitch said about the people that they had broken in and, in some cases, as I said, injured or killed some of, that there were millions of dollars being paid out underneath the table by mayors and governors to accommodate lawsuits that otherwise would have been fully condemnatory of their police forces. So in order to keep those lawsuits from coming to fruition and publicity to be gained from them, they paid off under the table the people whom they had wrongfully arrested or in some cases, as indicated, killed. In some cases, it was babies that they'd killed. We're listening to all these horror stories about law enforcement all across America. And we're asking questions like, what can we do to help you? And one of the first responses was, stop. We don't need MRAPs. We do not need armored vehicles in general. We do not need machine guns. We do not need all this stuff that makes us look like the uh, warriors from Star Wars. We do not need this kind of crap. Um, and, And then, of course, our response was, well, why do you take it? Well, you know, and then you get all kinds of answers from them. Uh, But it is a problem. It is a problem we created and a problem that we can fix. Not quickly, because we sent so much of that equipment out there, and we also sent training. And another thing that's happening, and this is going to – my son-in-law is an example of this. I, I won't say any names or anything. But we're sending military veterans out of Iraq and Afghanistan to police forces. And in some cases, that's good. In many cases, I'll say, I want to say, it's good. But in other cases, it's not so good, because military training and law enforcement training are two entire, or should be, two entirely different modes of training. I saw this in Iraq, when we tried to use the Spanish heavy police, uh, Guardia Seville, and we tried to use the Italian heavy police, the Carabinieri, To help us in Iraq, train Iraqi police forces, and what we got was we got just another military force instead of a police force. Now, if that's what you want, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. But you shouldn't be doing that in a country like America. You just are going to pay for that if you create a heavy police force that is really more military than it is law enforcement and you give it the philosophy that heavy police forces are even usually given. Shoot first and ask questions later, much the way the military operates. So yes, long story short, uh, I saw what a problem this is, and I still see that uh, it's been made even worse by reversing the Trump administration reverse the movement backward that President Obama, convinced that some of this uh, I've just been telling you is the case, convinced of that, he began to draw back on the military equipment going to civil law enforcement, um, Trump came in and re-upped the ante on it. And so now we have uh, the same problem times two or three being exacerbated all across the country. And let me add one other thing, too. And and I don't think my son-in-law would be too angry with me for saying this. The caliber of people that go into the police force, into law enforcement in general, is fairly high. But there are some people who go into law enforcement because they are the kind of people who are looking for an opportunity like that officer demonstrated recently with Floyd. They're looking for the opportunity to use their power, in some cases to use their power to hurt other people. If you don't weed those people out, it's just like you know this, if you don't weed those people out, whether they're in a squad or a platoon or a military law enforcement uh, complement or a civilian law enforcement compliment, then you're guilty too. If you don't take action against these people, if you you know pay the millions of dollars of fees that you have to pay to avoid going to court and so forth and just cover it up, just hide it and keep that person on the force, you're going to have these kinds of incidents. And the more you build that up, the more people like that you keep on the force, the more potential you have for catastrophic failure in the future. And that's what we've done. Um, There needs to be a cleaning of the house, if you will, in a lot of police departments and a lot of law enforcement entities. And the, the cleaning needs to be towards the community policing philosophy and concept and not towards the military concept. Yeah, I think that that's
0: so important because whereas to the extent that this ever exists, you know, I would say something close to a consensus of scholarship, you know, has demonstrated the value of community over militarized policing and yet it seems that policy never whether it's you know foreign policy or, or law enforcement policy it never really seems to catch up uh, or or be in line with the prevailing scholarship you know and we don't have a president who reads of course and and we don't have uh underlings who read the right things, so uh, even if they were valedictorian at west point you know in the case of pompeo uh you know as, as we sort of wrap up um looking at the time um uh, it's interesting that you mentioned your son-in-law and you know i think that it's important that you do because uh, just like we're called anti-american or you know uh, unpatriotic when we are go against these wars you know i've I found myself and thousands of others of course who you know we're told that we hate all cops you know just for being at a peaceful protest or criticizing these things and uh, and you know and i too i come from a family of Cops and firefighters, you know, I mean, uh, and a neighborhood full of them. And my, my, you know, I have four uncles that I, you know, lived with largely on, you know, especially on the weekends my whole life. And, you know, two of them were cops and then firemen and and two of them, you know, uh, I guess were some version of low-level criminal, right? Ended up dying of drug overdoses and run-ins with the law. And, uh, and there are good and there are bad cops and everyone knows the platitude, but we're, we're, we're really fighting the system. And, and I saw that system as we transitioned to the Kagan to ask the last question in Kansas City in a anecdotal way when, you know, khaki-clad police officers uh, in full riot gear banging on their shields eventually uh, in rhythm to scare us, uh, and, you know, in broad daylight had drones overhead and sniper armed overwatch whatever you want to call them teams on the rooftops behind them and you know i mentioned in my column today that you know i didn't always have that kind of you know overwatch for patrols against the a very real violent taliban that attacked us 365 365 days in kandora province so to me, that that's, that speaks, though, not just to the militarization of the police, but in our final transition to some of the aspects in terms of technology, mercenaries, machines, and militias, proxy militias that have characterized sort of, a new, you know, what Russell Wigley called in his famous book, American way of war. And it does seem that there's, there's something afoot and it's been there for a while. And I can't help but wonder what the pandemic's going to do it. So I'm going to let Kagan close out with the last question, kind of on that issue.
1: Thank you for bringing up the cop thing. I, before I started working with veterans, I actually thought about being a police officer. So I went to one of those uh, orientation movie or videos presentation and there was a lot of other veterans there and I thought it was really interesting but there was definitely some kids who were like oh can I use my own gun and like can I can't wait to do x y and z and it was just it was really disappointing (laughs) I'm like oh these are the people who actually become bullies um but I wanted to talk about uh I know that you commented on Danny's um uh, article on the social distancing way of war and we're talking a lot about uh, we, you and I talked earlier about the fact that we've been moving from this heavy mobilization, you know, Cold War type thinking into our new way of war, which is drones and special forces. And so we were just kind of wondering what your thoughts are on the movement in that direction. And then also what we can do as, you know, people who are out of the community and, civil, and citizens uh, what we can do to help keep the Pentagon accountable when the rest when our wars are just going to go unseen by most americans
3: that 's an excellent question you know my son uh, is a lieutenant colonel in the air force and he 's a reaper uh, reaper guy and i 've watched my son 's uh personality, which is quite vivacious and uh, he he's a guy who just uh, has got a joke for everything i've watched him deteriorate if that's the right word it probably isn't i've watched him change evolve um as he goes through iteration after iteration of use of the reaper and he's he's a squadron head now so he gets to see it full scale and I've watched also how when they switched the squadron's mission for a time from signature strikes or similar th- similar activities, when they switched it to close air support in Afghanistan, as I recall, you can't talk about it much, of course um, it it was a whole different uh person I was looking at The morale was completely different because. He was actually using the lingering time of the Reaper and the kinetic capabilities of the Reaper to support Marines and special forces on the ground in Afghanistan. And so it was a different thing. It was was more or less uh, the kind of war that we're more accustomed to, the kind of war that we see, uh, all wars, dishonorable in my view, but the kind of war that we see is honorable. You know, the guy's got a gun, I've got a gun, one of us is going to die. Not this kind of stuff. I'm going to kill you from 10,000 miles away. This is a case of lingering over a foxhole or over a a village or whatever in Afghanistan. And when a special forces team or Marine squad got in trouble, they helped them with close air support. And of course, the troops on the ground loved it because the drone could linger. It was much more accurate. It didn't roar in and roar off like an F-16 or whatever. Um, and so I, I I noticed a change in my son's morale when the mission shifted to that. Um, your question, though, is, I think, one of the questions of the future. I don't see that we're – here's another thing my son said. If it weren't for the bomber mafia and the fighter mafia in the Air Force, everything would be RPVs. Everything would be remotely piloted vehicles. It doesn't make any sense to risk the pilot's life when – the RPV can do the job as well, or in many cases, better than the human. Um, we've taken an F-18 equivalent, fully loaded with ordnance off a carrier, flown it to a target, struck the target, got 99% hit, and brought the plane back and landed it on the carrier again with no pilot in the loop. So my son's probably right. If it weren't for the mafias in the service, we would be doing that altogether now. But then your question is even more profound. What are we doing? Are we consigning, killing people for the state to artificial intelligence? Because that's ultimately what we'll do. What are the ethics of this? What are the ramifications of this for the warrior? What are the ramifications of it for the civil society the warrior is fighting for? Are there warriors anymore? Uh, is it all artificial intelligence? Is it all done over computers? Is it all cyber warfare? These are huge questions. I'm not going to answer them. I'm not going to even be around to see the answers, probably. But the generations I'm teaching right now, and you are probably. Um, and I, you know, for one, uh, maybe it's just the generational gap, but I don't envy you your task.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I just, I look at like, I, I like to look at things through the lens of ne- neoliberalism and just how, you know, we've seen the effects of that on our economy. We're seeing it right now and we're seeing the backlash. But I've been thinking about it from the military industrial complex perspective about the fact that we've been continuing operations and we look at this pattern of growth. And Danny and Henry and I have talked about this so many times about the how our measures of effectiveness are not lining up with our measures of performance. Like we, we keep looking at performance measures and we say, look at all the stuff that we did. Isn't this good? But there's no real substance behind it. There's no real policy and objective with it other than continuing. And I think about that a lot in the economic standpoint of the way that neoliberalism works where it's give all the money to the rich people and we'll see that it'll come down eventually, but it never does. And, and that's, and like, so I feel like that mentality has, um, it has really pervaded the entire structure of the military industrial complex. And so that we think about it in that same manner of, well, if we just keep doing this, it's going to work eventually. And the fact that we're pulling it now into autonomous vehicles and increasing, uh, our special forces command numbers, um, I just, I don't see any way for regular people to, like, that's been my big thing since I got out. I'm trying to, you know, let people know what's going on because a lot of the stuff that I was a part of wasn't really talked about at the time. Like, now everybody knows about Syria and Yemen and Somalia, but they didn't know shit about that 10 years ago. Yeah. And so I feel like, I feel like there's, there, there has to be a way for us to just constantly push and push on this, and just keep trying to make people aware that, look at what's being done in your name, and here's how, there are things that we can do to make it stop.
3: I agree with you. I I sometimes, when I teach covert operations as a part of national security decision making, I sometimes let my students look at some of the stuff that comes from the National Security Archives at the George Washington University, which is the real government stuff. It's the memoranda of record, it's the memoranda of conversation and so forth. It's where Nixon actually said to the director of the CIA, make the Chilean economy scream, and goes about doing it. And then I look at them and pause for a second, and I say, and what is your government doing today that because of classification, you won't know anything about for 25 years? Do you think they've stopped? Do you think they've ceased efforts? And then I tell them about the 2002 attempt to overthrow Hugo Chavez in Caracas in Venezuela that occurred during my administration. What else is going on? I asked them because your question is to the point it is going on and it is going on in the name of the American people. And it is going on with your taxpayer dollars. And in most cases it is going on contrary to the real interest of your country. I don't know what we do about it. I, I I don't. That scares me to death. Covert operations, in a sense, are the worst thing we've developed since World War II. They're out of control, and they're run by people who, uh, unlike the original CIA guys, even Alan Dulles and some of those other northeastern uh, pedal heads who came from Princeton, Harvard, and uh, elsewhere, uh, they don't even have their ethics, such as they were. They don't even have their skills and competence, which is why we haven't pulled off a successful covert operation. That is to say one that actually got rid of somebody we don't like in a long, long time. But we have in the process killed, harmed, maimed, and hurt a lot of people and a lot of economies.
0: Absolutely. And you're so right to connect the nexus of economics, militarism, and intelligence. And, uh, you know, you said you you don't, you know, you don't, you don't wish the challenge that we have upon our generation. And, and that's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. And there, there are a lot of reasons for concern and, and I have to fight my dark moments and i'm just old enough now that you know i have students west point grads who are out in the force and and i I used to say that i wanted to vomit in a trash bin whenever i thought about them going to the same wars that i fought and of course they did and so one take and there have been phases in my life where i say oh you know everything's everything's over you know nothing good is is going to come in this world and and there's a real reason for that i mean i'm not for you know uh, naive optimism but i will say that we we do just keep passing this torch of uh challenge and uh what i call patriotic dissent i'm sure i didn't coin it and uh larry you know i mean you're you're 75 years old i think you said and and uh y- you've done your part and one of the things you've done the best i think and even though i think you'd agree with me that just having been military doesn't it's not healthy for that to be the thing that lends us our credibility but you know i mean they still attack you i'm sure as they attack all of us but when you give if my math is correct 45 years of your life in in government service you know it it does make it just a little harder to to say this person is anti-american and you know we're thankful and I know millions of people are thankful for your voice. And uh, I just hope that we're carrying on some of that mantle. And I know that it's going to be time soon enough, and it already is, where we're passing that same torch to uh, to a younger group. And if if the police brutality and militarization issues, is what's getting folks in the streets, because clearly, as we both <laughs> agree, without a draft, we have been having a lot of trouble with that over anti-war stuff. Then uh, then so be it. And let's try to connect those issues. And I just want to thank you one more time for coming on and and being that connective tissue always uh, between domestic and international and social and political, because it's rare. Uh, it's profound, and and i 'm glad that uh, some mainstream media is again reaching out to you because uh, your voice is so great. So thank you for coming on and and if, and if uh, you have anything cooking or any place you 'd like to kind of direct listeners, just please do let us know before you go.
3: Well, thank you. Um, I was on the campus at Women Mary right before the coronavirus drove us away. And I saw a bumper sticker, and I love the bumper sticker. Uh, It said simply, dissent is the highest form of patriotism. (laughs) I think that's the theme of Tom Mueller's book, Crisis of Conscience, too, and the theme that motivates and energizes a lot of the whistleblowers that he talks about, from everything, as I indicated, in the nuclear community to the warfare community to the military-industrial complex whistleblowers, for example, at Lockheed Martin on the F-35 program and so forth. Um, These are real patriots. I'm I'm not tooting my own horn. These are real patriots. And I look at you and your gang and uh, others like you as the same kind. I hosted Edward Snowden's uh, video teleconference at the College of William & Mary, and I did it for essentially one reason. Because I thought to turn it off and to not listen to this young man and hear what he had to say was un-American.
0: Totally agree. And uh, it's, it's awesome that you uh, were willing to, to, to open up to that voice and, uh, and so many others because free thinking uh, is, is really a dying art. And uh, Larry, I just want to thank you one more time for being on. And I agree that uh, in moments of crisis, especially, uh, dissent is the highest form of patriotism and uh and and you're not going to toot your own horn but i will you've you've done more of than your part and, and more of a part than than probably a lot of folks and so well, we're just really honored that you came on and i uh, hope we can do it again soon thank you and keep up the good work and stay healthy
1: thank you so much <laughs> for
0: all of you <laughs> uh, th- thanks larry you too and uh, we'll talk soon take care
2: we're on twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time and listen to my song I hope you'll pay attention I will not I